Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. To afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I am glad to be spending this time with you. I hope you've had a good day so far. It's going to be a great show. I've been working on it. Got up early and Rob Blue is going to be joining me in just a minute. I'm looking forward to that. And then Chris Palmer, who is uh, one of my Greek experts, he makes Greek fun. You're going to enjoy that uh, time with Chris. He's going to be back on the program got a busy second hour as well, so lots of things happening. I saw in the news that U.S. ranks last among 46 countries in trust in media. That's disturbing. So there aren't too many people that trust the media anymore, so it's nice when Rob Louie comes on because he is the executive editor at The Daily Signal and my Washington, D.C. correspondent. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Bill. And that is a disturbing statistic. Oh, I saw it as well. And I, uh, I don't know how we restore that trust because it's been declining now for several decades. And uh, the news media is not, um, is not doing themselves any favors because it seems that uh, day in and day out, there are always new examples that you can point to of where that trust is eroding. And I think in some cases, deservedly so. Uh, journalists are, are being irresponsible um, with the uh, with the responsibility that the public has entrusted them uh, in terms of presenting fair and accurate news. I think they're increasingly uh, taking sides and not being transparent about it. Look, we're, 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 we tell you who we are um, at the Daily Signal. We, we, we don't hide it. And, uh, and I think, um, you know, that's, that's quite clear with Faith Radio as well. I mean, you uh, clearly identify yourself as, as, a, as a station that's, um, that, that has a clear point of view. And I think that that's what the American people want. I think that that's one way to restore that trust is let's be honest with people and not pretend that we're unbiased when, in fact, um, it's hard for anybody in this day and age to be unbiased. Uh, yeah. We all have our own different perspectives, that's the, for sure. The article said, Rob, one explanation they thought, um, and maybe not necessarily the only one, is the extreme political polarization in the U.S. Well, that is true. And, yes, you, you tend to see that conservatives or Republicans are uh, definitely the, the, the trust level is lower with them than it is with, with Democrats or liberals. But I think that, um, you know, just as we saw, you know, the interesting thing, Bill, is uh, four years ago, you had um, a situation where many Democrats felt that the 2016 presidential election was unfairly decided, and they had a lot of trust issues with the electoral process. Mm-hmm. And now, fast forward four years, and you have Republicans and conservatives who feel the same way. I mean, I've looked at some polling data that suggests that, you know, upwards of 20 percent of, of Republicans um, don't think our elections are, are secure uh, based on, on, on things that President Trump continues to say and other things like that. So I think that there's, there's all, the institutions themselves, uh, whether it be media, whether it be government, um, whether it be corporations in some cases, it may even be religion. Uh, you know, there are, are some big changes happening in our country right now, and I think the disruptive nature, uh, particularly in the media space, has created a situation where uh, new voices have been uh, been able to emerge and uh, new platforms in terms of how people get the news uh, through social media and through other other means. Um, that's all, you know, 
big shakedown that's probably going to take years, if not decades, to sort itself out. And in that process, it's really incumbent upon journalists who have been those gatekeepers of news and information uh, to do their best um, to present uh, information truthfully and fairly. Mm -hmm. Rob, what story in Washington, D.C. is getting the most oxygen right now? Well, there's a couple of things. Uh, Number one, um, this is the big week for Supreme Court decisions. Mm -hmm. So we didn't see some of the big ones today, but we expect to see them on Thursday, Bill. So two days from now, uh, you're going to have two major cases, which I think will have big implications for what happens in Congress and probably sets the tone for some of the big debates that we have later this year. Uh, One of them stems from Arizona. It has to do uh, with this idea of uh, vote trafficking, where people can can go and use different means of of not only um, collecting ballots, but uh, but soliciting uh, particular individuals and encouraging them to vote. And it's really a, diff- a whole different take on how the voting process works. And Arizona wanted to make some changes to that and then faced a lawsuit from the Democratic National Committee. Um, the other one has to do with Americans for Prosperity. And it's really about donor disclosure. Um, how much information should uh, a, a nonprofit organization, a charity, have to turn over to the government or make public? And um, we know going back decades um, to the time of the NAACP when they faced a lawsuit, um, or they themselves uh, challenged this notion that they should have to turn over their donor list because obviously there was a time period in our country where if the NAACP turned over its donor list, those people uh, could have faced you know, severe consequences from, from some racist elements of our society. And so I think today uh, we live in a culture of, of cancel culture and woke mobs. There are nonprofits and charities that want to keep their donors private if somebody requests the anonymity. And so the Supreme Court's going to be deciding those two big issues. And I bring those up because they both have to do with this notion of money in politics and our electoral system. And that's really where members of Congress are concentrating a lot of their attention. Uh, we saw last week the vote on, on S-1 or the For the People Act go down. And so Democrats right now are trying to think about what are the next steps that they take um, when it comes to election laws. Texas is going to be having a special section, session in July. So a lot of activity still on this whole issue of elections. That's one big issue. Uh, the other one's infrastructure, which we can get into, or we could we can shift to another topic, Bill. But uh, but there's no shortage of debates happening in Washington. That's for sure. Yeah, I would love to hear your perspective on the infrastructure bill, where it's at, and where it's headed. Well, I think that you know this is one of those areas where you actually have Republicans and Democrats who have found some common ground with uh, with President Biden in the White House. Um, whether that lasts is a, is a big question in the minds of a lot of people. It appeared that even just two hours after uh, the president signaled everybody to come out into the um, the White House lawn and and uh, celebrate this this compromise uh, that he himself had undermined it because he came out and said, "Well, this bipartisan deal is good, but I'm not going to move forward on this. In fact, I'll veto it if we don't get this larger uh, partisan bill um, that, uh, that that he wants to pass kind of simultaneously." Uh, he walked back some of those comments on Sunday, which was an encouraging sign to those who uh, who support the infrastructure bill. But it's uh, it's still a big question as to whether Speaker Pelosi and uh, and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are going to allow that to happen. Because re- really, what the big debate here is, you have the progressives uh, or, or the the left wing of the Democratic Party who wants to spend trillions of dollars. Some have put the estimate at six trillion dollars in terms of spending, where you lump in all of these these various plans that the Biden administration has put out and put them all together into a legislative package. And they want to put that through Congress on a straight party line vote. So it would have to pass the Senate 
really 51 to 50 because Vice President Harris would cast the tie-breaking vote. And then you would have this much smaller package that Republicans and Democrats agreed upon. Well, Republicans are left scratching their heads saying, wait a second, that doesn't sound like it's a, it's a deal to me. You don't, you don't have a handshake agreement with the president on something and then have him come back and say, well, <laughs> actually, I'm not going to do that unless you give me this other thing. Um, and that's essentially the world we find ourselves in right now. But uh, it's, uh, it's interesting to watch. I think the American people want good roads and bridges. That's what they care about. I'm sure that's what many of your listeners want. They want to make sure that if they're traveling down the highway, um, it, that uh, it's going to be safe. And, uh, and, and, you know, there are some other infrastructure improvements, probably like broadband, that, uh, you know, that can help communities across our country. But when you start attacking on extraneous things to, infra- to so-called infrastructure bills that really have nothing to do with what we traditionally define as infrastructure, that's where I think things start to break apart. And so as encouraging as it was to see Republicans and Democrats finally getting along on something, um, it's far from a done deal. Robin, we talk about infrastructure. The f- first two things that always pop into my mind, of course, are roads and bridges. Are there other components in an infrastructure bill? Is, is there electrical grids? Is there other things that uh, need improvement as well. Well, sure, there are, and and there, there's a lot that um, that, in, that that you know some constituencies want in terms of um, green energy and, and 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 to address climate change. Mm-hmm. So, of course, um, so you could, for instance, electric car charging stations. You know, do, it, it, could the federal government spend money on that and uh, provide states with the resources to install them now? I think that it's it's a question about whether or not that that's a good use of taxpayer dollars, uh, because at the end of the day, I think that this is where there is a disconnect for, from Washington and the American people. If you ask people, and I've seen the polling numbers, that, that if you ask people how much they're willing to spend on those infrastructure improvements that kind of go beyond roads and bridges, things like green energy and um, and to support the, uh, you know, solar power and, and other different means of renewable energy, uh, they tend not to want to spend a whole lot of their own money on those things. If it's somebody else's money, they might might not necessarily care as much. But when it comes down to their own family budget, uh, they're a little bit more concerned about it. And so those are some of the things that have been included. But uh, yeah, the definition of infrastructure has definitely been stretched here because we're talking about a lot of things that include even health care uh, and child care and um, various things that uh, you wouldn't think of when you traditionally talk about that topic. But in this day and age, I think that they know that infrastructure tends to be a popular thing with voters. And so if you can sneak in a few other things along the way, maybe it's a way to uh, score some political points and, and appease some constituencies that uh, want to get that funding. This is uh, one of those, those issues, Bill, where the lobbyists are out full force to get uh, their slice of the pie. Yeah. Yesterday, I talked to one of my guests and we were talking a little bit about infrastructure like the uh Jen Psaki was saying that she wants they want 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations that are needed for rural and disadvantaged disadvantaged communities and you think of the price of some of these electric cars and then you go into rural and disadvantaged communities and that doesn't seem on the surface to make a ton of sense that is one of the biggest challenges. You're, you're absolutely right. Look, Bill, I was in the market for a new car recently, and I, I seriously looked at it because I, I, you know, I, this is my car that commutes back and forth from my home to the office, so it's primarily just me. And I ended up getting a, a hybrid vehicle, nice. uh, so it gets great gas mileage. But I looked at, I looked into the electric vehicles. 
And I just felt that even for, you know, the price that uh, of a Tesla, I mean, and I see Teslas all around the Washington, D.C. area. Well, the Washington, D.C. area is one of the most affluent areas of our country. So it's not necessarily surprising to see a whole bunch of Teslas. But uh, a, a Tesla is not a cheap car. You're absolutely right. And I think that for for individuals who maybe have a desire to purchase an electric vehicle, yeah, in many cases, the price point is still out. Even, even I remember reading a story recently from an Axios reporter who is very big into, you know, the climate change and wanting to help the environment. And she did her own analysis and ended up getting a Prius because she felt that it just wasn't a good value to buy an electric vehicle right now. And so, yes, there are some challenges uh, that I think the American people face. And I think it's probably incumbent upon the private sector and the car companies to, to figure out how to make electric vehicles that are affordable. But then there's the other side of this bill, and we need to remember that the, the components and the, the minerals uh, and, and the precious metals that go into batteries for these electrical, electric vehicles have to come from someplace too. And we've heard some horror stories about what goes on in the Congo with, uh, with youth labor, um, and, we, and we've seen what happens in China uh, with forced labor. So uh, there are you know, implications and consequences even, even to electric vehicles, and we need to make sure that we're not um, you know, using the Earth's resources in an irresponsible way uh, that way as well. Yeah, I owned a hybrid car uh, once, and the battery did go bad. And the good news is it was only $3,900 to replace. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is my – I used to have a Ford C-Max, which is part gas, part electric. Yeah. And I had to replace the battery too, and I had the same – I could not believe that it was not under warranty. And they, when I showed up to get it fixed, they said, nope, <laughs> this is excluded from you know the, the three-year warranty that whatever your car comes with now standard. So, yes, you're absolutely right. It is expensive. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Rob Louis, my guest, we'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more. Go to uh, – uh, DailySignal.com if you want to learn more about Rob and his brilliant staff. Be right back. Joe Rob Blue is my guest, and I'm going to give him an option right now. Do you want to talk about China and what's going on with their secrecy and how it affects us and COVID-19, or do we want to talk about the border and the vice president's trip there? Your choice. Well, well, let's start with let's start closer to home with the border, and then okay. we can get to China. Um, <laughs> All right. Yeah. The, so the vice president did make a trip uh, finally to the border. Uh, this this came uh, notably after President Trump uh, promised that. He would go to the border with uh, Texas Governor uh, Greg Abbott, and uh, and it was encouraging that uh, she made the trip. Of, of course, um, I I think that um, you know heading to El Paso was was not necessarily the 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 epicenter or the place where they're having the the most activity. And of course, it came in the context of uh, the chief of the Border Patrol announcing that he's he's resigning, which was disappointing news, uh, particularly at a time when I think the morale and the the workforce there at the Border Patrol, um, you know, needs all the support they can get. So it uh, continues to be a problem. Uh, the headline today is that uh, Venezuelans are crossing the border in the Rio Grande Valley at record numbers. Um, so we continue to see this happening um, later into the year, Bill, is, uh, than I think um, we anticipated. I mean, it's usually the spring months when it's a little bit cooler as opposed to the summer when it's obviously uh, getting stifling hot. 
that you're seeing people making the trek. But, um, but yeah, I think that we need to do two things. I mean, yes, uh, I agree with the vice president uh, that we need to get to the root cause of this. I mean, I always believe that that's, that's an area. I, I, I wish that, that we could get to the root cause of some other challenges in, in our own country. Uh, you and I have talked about plenty of those uh, in, in, our, in our weekly visits. But, um, but yes, I think that if we can, if we can figure out ways in which we prevent individuals from even making the dangerous trek in the first place, that's a good thing. Uh, but then I think that the policies that the, the administration has put into place and the, the lack of enforcement um, in terms of the, the, the new uh, plan that they plan to get rid of Title 42, which is the means of sending them back if, they, um, if, if, you know, if they're going to bring a communicable disease to the United States, is just uh, short-sighted, and uh, it's one—it's been one of the most effective policies that we've had in terms of preventing the United States from having more COVID cases um, in our country. So I'm—I'm I'm disappointed in in that regard, but um, but I, I hope that uh, we can continue to see more and more Democrats, and we're we're seeing this in the House, recognizing that this is a political liability, and therefore it's time for the administration to start changing their policy uh, when it comes to uh, these these border crossings. Mm-hmm. When I think of China and I think of, obviously, they're incredibly powerful, they're secretive, and they're also quite oppressive. When they make statements and they say what their position is, why why would we believe them? Well, we, we shouldn't. And uh, that's the uh, conclusion of a new report that uh, is from the Heritage Foundation, the parent organization of the Daily Signal. And uh, it's called the China Transparency Report. It's a, an annual report that looks at data from a lot of open sources, um, also looks at information from the Chinese Communist Party and other you know, government entities there, as well as some private uh, non-government um, entities. And what it finds is that whether it's China's economy, its investments, its work um, on energy and environment, human rights, military, technology, uh, there is a lack of information. Uh, openness and transparency is not a hallmark of, uh, of, of the Chinese um, government, and, and that is probably not a, a major surprise given the, the authoritarian or totalitarian uh, way that it operates. And we look, have to look no further than what happened with uh, the coronavirus and the fact that China for, for many uh, months did not, uh, was not open and still isn't really being open and honest with the world community about uh, the origins of the virus and uh, providing those necessary warnings that I think would have saved so many lives and prevented so many people from ever getting sick had they, um, had they taken more responsibility up front. Uh, but it happens across the board, and we're seeing this with the military. We're seeing the Chinese ramp up uh, production of, of military, and uh, this is this comes at a time when the United States is, is suffering some some readiness challenges with our own military. And I think the Chinese are looking for an opportunity to to pass us in, in some areas, particularly the Navy, in terms of its, its aggressive shipbuilding. And so. Uh, we're trying to get as much information we can and pull that information together uh, on the Heritage website uh, so individuals who do want to know more about what's going on in China will have access to it at their fingertips. Yeah, Rob, I don't want to talk about your pirates or my twins because it might be too painful for both of us. <laughs> so maybe we can shift our attention to Gwen Berry and the activism at the Olympics uh, trials oh, that's right. and what's going yeah. on as far as activism in sports. Yeah, well, sports, the sports world, again, um, you know, takes uh, headlines for the wrong reason here. And uh, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, as the United States, as the national anthem uh, was, was playing, uh, 
She stood in protest, uh, clearly annoyed and irritated by the fact that she had to stand on the podium and listen to the national anthem. And I think that, uh, you know, I I found it particularly disturbing, particularly after just achieving a a great accomplishment in in her case. Uh, But I, I, I don't know whether it's, it's, it's the nature of, you know, athletes feeling like this is the only way that they can get attention and kind of make a name for themselves. Um, their achievement, their, their athletic achievements alone don't give them that, uh, that sense of accomplishment. And, uh, and she really literally wore it on her shirt where she called herself an activist athlete. And, uh, and I think it's fine to, uh, to protest and make a name for yourself. Obviously, Muhammad Ali you know, did this long before I was ever born. <laughs> uh, but I, I think that the reason that individuals are protesting today and some of the, re- and some of the rationale they're giving for it is far different from athletes of a previous generation. And, uh, and to suggest that there's no reason to be proud of, of our country when you look at it. And I mean, Bill, just to contrast two things, I mean, we're just talking a moment ago about how all of these migrants from South America and Latin America are making this dangerous trek to the United States because of the freedom and liberty that we offer. And you have people in our own country who take that for granted or, or, or don't appreciate it. Um, I think it just stands in stark contrast. And so I, I think that sometimes we should put ourselves in the shoes of other people and, and look at the Chinese and, and you know, the limitations they have in terms of their freedom. And just be grateful and uh, and so thankful and blessed of what we have here in our own country. And Rob, competing in the Olympics is is not a right. It's it's a, something you earn. It's a privilege. I mean, because you're representing our, our our country. And I think there's a rule that forbids any kind of political displays. So please follow the rules. Please follow the rules. And and also uh, imagine if I mean, I, I think there are a few countries that would tolerate this kind of behavior. Um, other than the United States, um, if I, I would never imagine a Russian athlete or, or an athlete from another country behaving this way and disrespecting their, their country and being allowed to get away with it. And yet we allow people that freedom of speech and, and ability. But you're right. I would prefer to keep the politics entirely out of the Olympics. I think just as businesses have started to see a backlash for making more political statements, uh, these athletes and maybe sports in general are going to see that. I don't think Major League Baseball has entirely recovered from the whole fiasco with moving the all-star game from Atlanta right. in part, because not only did that hurt the minority community in Atlanta, which was counting on that business and revenue. Um, but I, I think that a lot of Americans just said enough is enough. You know, there's no reason for major league baseball to take this, the stand, particularly when they took the stand on, on kind of this false notion that the Georgia's election law was, was in some way suppressing the vote, which it wasn't. Um, it was not doing that at all. If you actually read the law. So, Bill, uh, maybe at some point we'll be able to get beyond this, but for the time being, it seems like we're stuck with it. Yeah. Um, have you bought your sparklers yet for the Bluey kids? <laughs> we did. We went this weekend, and uh, <laughs> we uh, we loaded up on, on some sparklers, and uh, and the kids are really excited. And I think that it's so important to to use this these next few days and and, the, and Independence Day, the Fourth of July. Uh, to talk to uh, our families and friends about the significance and importance of America. We were yeah. just doing so a moment ago, but Amen. but let's uh, let's reflect on the sacrifices that, uh, that, that people have come before us, and, uh, and that Declaration of Independence, take a moment to read it um, on July yep. 4th. Thanks, Rob. See you next week. Thanks, Bill. Yep. Take care. We'll take a short break and be back with Chris Palmer. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno, Brad Tom Drive. 
Chris Palmer makes learning Greek fun. After studying some Greek with Chris, you'll even have a newfound appreciation for your Greek yogurt. This is how much you will enjoy learning Greek with Chris. He's the founder of Light of Today Church in Novi, Michigan, and founder and sole proprietor and all things uh, Chris Palmer Ministries. He's the host of the popular podcast, Greek for the Week, and he's uh, you see that on several uh, platforms on the Internet. And he's... Uh, He's just an awesome teacher and wants to get us engaged with learning Greek. Uh, his book on that alone is uh, called Greek Word Study, 90 Ancient Words That Unlock Scripture, and it's 384 pages, 1.5 pounds. There's some value in this baby. Let me just tell you right now. And he's also written a new book called Strange Scriptures, Deciphering 52 Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses from the New Testament. And you know, it's, I found it fascinating when Jesus taught. He always took advantage of what people already knew. So learning those words uh, in Greek and, and their application really help unlock Scripture as you learn it. And Chris Palmer is my guest today. Chris, welcome. Bill, it's uh, so good to uh, be back with you. And when I was asked to be on the show, I said, "Let's do it again. Let's let's keep it going here." So thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I really, a, you're, you do great radio, and you're a great guest. And I also <laughs> love uh, learning Greek, and you make it fun, and you really do. And I think we all need oh. to learn more Greek. So I said to Rosie, "Let's just have Chris on regularly." <laughs> well, when she told me that, I was blown away, and I, I love it. Because but there's no money in my, it, so no, no it's get... okay. My, my... <laughs> Well, then I'm out. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> My Greek students um, that I'm teaching now, I'm teaching Greek 3, and they probably might have a different opinion of me. I gave them a 40-page assignment, so they might say, they might think differently of me. <laughs> but I'm glad someone appreciates me. <laughs> no, I, I, I enjoy it a lot. So let's talk a little bit about the strange scriptures, uh, yeah. deciphering 52 weird, bizarre, and curious verses from the New uh, Testament. We didn't really have a ton of time last time you were on the show uh, to cover a bunch of these, so I'd like to spend more time with that, if that's all right with you. Yeah, let's do it. Um, let's go to the book of John. Okay. I think this is one that we didn't talk about. Um, and so I want to do something that I, I show my students, uh, that you know, usually when we read the text, we are so engaged with looking at a verse or two at a time. We learn, perhaps in our, in our Sunday schools, to just read a chapter a day, read two chapters a day, and that's great. But the problem with that, it does have a downside, is that we miss the overall narrative. And so we don't see the big picture, what we call in theology, the meta-narrative or the grand narrative. And so there are certain things that we want to look for if we read the whole story uh, and keep it together in our minds as we read. We can uncover even more nuances that shed light on maybe what John was trying to get at or what the biblical author is trying to get at. And so here's here's an interesting point. Now, I say very clearly in Strange Scriptures that these, the way that I'm writing them, it can go both ways on certain things, not decisive. So I pick kind of where I fall on the issue and, and leave it there. But I think there's something interesting to observe in John chapter 21, 25. It says here, when John is concluding this gospel that he's written, he gives like this postscript and says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. He says, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, this word here, suppose, 
oime, um, is used in the present tense. Um, and so it's, it's a continuous supposing. So perhaps it's not reading too much into it to say that there's this imagining going on. Uh, it definitely suggests that John has thought about this. And this is something he's given a thought to more than just once. It's probably something he's talked over with other disciples, but he's familiar with this thought. Now, usually this verse is called hyperbole. People would just write this off and say, you know, this is hyperbolic. He's just saying Jesus did a lot of other things he didn't write about. He healed lots of people. Everybody in of themselves has their own testimony. And, you know, he's saying that it would take up a lot of pages. And that that's very probable. Mm-hmm. But the other side of that, the other side of that, I think is even more interesting to consider, is when you look at what John was trying to accomplish by writing the gospel, he was putting together sort of a treatise for suggesting that Jesus is not only man, he's 100% man, but he's also God. And not only is he also God, he's the creator. And the way that he suggests that is in John chapter 1, 1 to 3, he echoes back Genesis and he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was, was God. So he's, he's alluding back to Genesis. And by doing that, he's developing what begins to emerge, a Trinitarian theology at this point. It starts to emerge from John. But he puts Jesus back at the creation account with the Father, okay, and with the Spirit. Okay, the Spirit hovers over the waters. So he has this God, Jesus, who is a man who's going to walk amongst us, and we're getting ready to see that. But before he even does any of this, he's been creating all throughout, all throughout the ages. So it might be possible, and I think this is a very much possibility, when he's saying this, he could also be suggesting that if we took everything that Jesus has done, not only in his miracles here on the earth, but if we consider everything he's done as creator throughout the age of the ages, it would be impossible to house in libraries at all the infinite works of Christ because he didn't just start creating when he created the earth. He's been creating throughout all eternity, and this would be a really nice way to sandwich the idea of God as create, Jesus as creator in the first chapter and in the last chapter of John. It acts as a frame, and it frames everything in between that the creator has walked amongst us as man, and he has been with us and he's soon in coming. I think that's probably a way you can look at it. That's a really interesting perspective, Chris, because I've always just kind of thought, ah, hyperbole. But now when I think of the creation from the ages of ages, like you say, uh, Mm -hmm. that is a spectacular thought, and it makes eternity even more exciting to think of all the things we will uh, learn and 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 things that will be made known to us. You know, it's it's not actually unpopular in scholarship to find that uh, as you go through your Indian scholars uh, who who kind of look for the grandness of Jesus as creator. I mean, to really understand John, you you it's it's best to look at Jesus as creator. A lot of the miracles that he does attest to that. Um, actually, all of Jesus's miracles, not all, I would say from chapter one all the way to chapter eleven, everything Jesus does, water, the idea of water, is central to that. Um, and so this Jesus is, you know, turning water into wine. He's with the woman at the well. She leaves her water pot behind. She draws living water. He tells Nicodemus, be born of water of the spirit. Um, you know, he's calming the storm. He tells the man to go into the pool and wash. I mean, you have all of this narrative that's centered around water. Um, and John's theology begins, you see, if he, we believe he wrote John, I believe he uh, wrote John, not just John, but Revelation. He, he mentions the sea in Revelation as sort of being a chaotic thing. 
um, the beast comes out of the sea. You have um, the, the the saints are next to the sea when they sing the song of the Lamb, which represents sort of chaos. And so John's idea, John's perspective of water in Revelation um, is chaotic. And Jonian scholars would believe that John and Revelation connect. So Revelation sort of finishes off some of the ideas that he has in John. So if water is chaos, mm-hmm. I fail to say that if water is chaos, what you see Jesus doing, and that would allude back to Genesis 1 when you see water on the earth, what Jesus is doing in John, when he centers around the water, is he's putting order back into chaos. I mean, he's he's showing the the wine coming out of the water is that his kingdom is going to emerge from the chaos or from the water. He's on the water. He's controlling the elements. The waters were this, uh, you know, you have these sea creatures that live in the water. It's dark. It's wind blowing. Jesus calms the storm like he does in Genesis chapter one. Um, and so. He gives people living water. It's now something that's sustainable, that can give life. It's not to be looked at as bad. So he's repurposing the narrative, and you just get this imagery in John that Jesus is at work. He's he's not only creator. He has created, but he's recreating. He's bringing forth a new creation. And by calling people to repentance, what he's doing in that is he's inviting people to be part of this new kingdom or this new creation and to follow him in that way. And then when he teaches— He's showing you how the logic of God is in that kingdom, that we forgive our enemies. We love our enemies. We don't do things the way that the world does things. And he's showing you kind of what that different creation is all about. It's about everything is opposite. And so it all kind of works together cohesively. Um, and that's kind of throughout all of the, the gospel narratives, just a bigger story. And I, I always tell my students, look at the bigger story and, and don't be – I'm working on a book now that'll be out next year um, that's called Wings from Scripture. And it's these oddities, these subtleties that we see in the biblical narrative, but we we, we don't see it obviously and right away. It's they're, they're just subtle hints, and some of the ways that we those develop are through some of the characters and how they unfold and how they develop. Um, and so you have to read very carefully and appreciate the story for the story's sake and what the story's trying to tell you. So um, I think it's it's a very fruitful thing to look for the bigger picture and, and see how it theologizes from that perspective. Do you sleep much? <laughs> do I sound like I'm, I'm a ranting? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, no. It's, do, 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 think about all this and then to be writing your books. And I want to say that uh, Chris Palmer's book that we're talking about doesn't even come out until August. He's already talking about the one he's going to write after that. So I was just thinking you're not <laughs> sleeping at all. Uh, that's what I'm guessing. Okay. I, I laugh because we always joke about how theologians like to, to stay up late at night and get revelations from God. <laughs> we got our candle like like Scrooge McDuck with our candle. And we're just, we're... <laughs> so, so even in John chapter 3, I'm kind of down a different direction now, but when we talk about water and Jesus says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, when you read that, Chris, do you think that that water is that living water that he offers? Yeah, I think that it could be. I mean, the way that you look at it, the way that the Greek reads right there, the word there, and it could be, it could be a connective conjunction, which would mean born of water, and secondarily, the spirit, or it could be something that is clarifying. It could be born of water, even or namely the spirit. So he might be saying, "Be born of water," which is the spirit, um, or he could be saying, "Being born of water," which would be some sort of born again experience. Or some would take it as water baptism. I don't think that's what he's suggesting at that point, uh, because water baptism hasn't been introduced uh, in the Christian form that we do it uh, at this point. Um, at this point, he hasn't done that, which would be the Spirit. So I think he's talking about an, he, he's introducing the Spirit. I think that that's extremely important 
because now we have a Trinitarian theology. We see the Father in, in, in John chapter 1. We see the Son. He's introducing the Spirit here. Uh, and so this is where Trinitarians start to align. And, and then, you know, you've seen that in Christ's baptism and, and, and Matthew's account, Luke's account. Um, so I love that John is very Trinitarian, and he, he makes it clear that there's this mystery of the Godhead that we have to, that we, we begin to accept, and that he'll start articulating even later in his letters. Um, but he's, he's showing you that salvation cannot come without the work of the Trinity being involved in it. Jesus is referring to the work of the Spirit in salvation. Okay, In order for the Spirit to regenerate, it takes the work of Christ to do that on the cross. For Christ to have that work on the cross, he's sent from the Father, okay, and he's empowered by the Spirit. And so the way I look at that is seeing the Godhead at work as because of the Godhead, I can have salvation. Because of the Godhead's plan, there is redemption through Christ, okay, by the power of the Spirit and reconciliation to the Father. It's just a marvelous plan uh, when you look at it. That is indeed. Chris Palmer is my guest. We're going to take a short break. Uh, the book we're chatting about is not even out till. August, but it's called Strange Scriptures, Deciphering 52 Weird, Bizarre, and Curious Verses from the New Testament. And he also has written a book called Greek Word Study, 90 Ancient Words That Unlock Scripture. We'll be right back with Chris in just a minute. show. Chris Palmer is my guest. And uh, Chris, I don't know if you know this, uh, but during the break, you won a major fan in my producer, Rosie. She just uh, <laughs> said she was flabbergasted. Well, she's so kind and nice that uh, I'll, I'll take her as a fan any okay, day. Okay, <laughs> good, good. All right. Now, Strange Scriptures, deciphering 52 weird, bizarre, and cur curious verses from the New Testament. There's not a lot I can throw your way because the book's not out yet, so I haven't read it. So I can't ask yeah. you about it. So you're going to have to okay. feed me some stuff. Okay, so let's talk about, um, so I put a preface in the beginning and say that some of these texts that I deal with, um, for every commentator, there is a rendition of this and the, the, the issues with the Greek. Um, one thing my, my Greek three students are coming to learn in their third year of Greek is that the Greek doesn't always settle things. And that's frustrating to people in Western schools because, you know, Western thinking is a product of enlightenment thinking, scientific method, reason, rationale. We come to the text as skeptics and we want to be we want to be informed and we want to be certain. And, and some things just don't really land us, but certainly not to be concerned, though. These aren't huge areas of doctrine um, that would change anything credal uh, and change our faith. It's just sort of tit for tat type stuff. And so I really I tackle some of these. One of the more interesting ones, at least that I, I like and I say these are scriptures that we really don't hear in church. <laughs> a lot of pastors would preach around these, and I can see why. I don't blame them for it. Um, they're just It's not stuff you hear on Sunday mornings because the, the immediateness of it uh, would be something perhaps better for a Wednesday night. But needless to say, I, I try to help some pastors out with these texts here, one of them being 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 4-5, um, which is a really odd verse. It says the Apostle Paul is Com, uh, communicating with his Corinthian church, which is which was down there in southern Greece, okay, and you know Corinth was a pagan city. It wasn't much different from a lot of the other 
pagan cities at that time. They had temple prostitutes, very sexualized culture. Um, and so the Christians were, they never heard a Judean ethic. They never really felt that you know, sexuality was something that they had to avoid. And so it was loose and promiscuous. And he tells them, he tells this church who's come out of this sexual sin, he says, when you're assembled in the name of the Lord and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, this is not a fuzzy scripture. It's not a warm scripture. And it begs some context. Well, you had this guy who was fornicating with his his um, fa- his father's wife. So it'd be like his mother-in-law or not a mother-in-law. It'd be his mother um, what's the word I'm looking for? Stepmom. His stepmother. Yeah, stepmom. Okay, so and th- and that would make sense because men married women who were a lot younger at that time, so it probably was around his age. And so you have this adulterous relationship that's going on. And the way the Corinthian church is handling it is they're sort of proud of themselves for being, hey, you know what? We're not condemning him. We're not judging him. He's still going to be in our midst. Now there's a fine line, and when people are living in sin, and um, you know they're in the church, pe- people welcome them and say, hey, look. We're calling you to come out of that sin, but that's exactly the opposite of what's going on. It's that they were accepting it, and he was actually getting to the point where he was spreading his attitude, and it was becoming part of the culture in the Corinthian church, and Paul saw that as damaging. Like, this this attitude can't be adopted. I mean, it's almost in principle, like when you take a bad apple and you put it with a bunch of other apples, all apples go bad, and this is exactly what's going on here. So Paul sees this as it's not good. Furthermore, the man wasn't repentant. His attitude was all wrong about sin. It wasn't even so much the sin in and of itself, even though it was sin. It was sort of how his attitude was towards it. He didn't feel he had to repent, um, and he had hardened himself to repentance. So Paul comes up with this, I'm sure by the Spirit, This, I, I, and I hate to call it a strategy because I'm sure somebody would probably not be happy, but I'm going to call it a strategy. He says, this is what we're going to do. Deliver this man to Satan. So he's excommunicating them. And excommunication in those days was simply saying, don't allow this man to be considered part of the part of fellowshipping with this church. You're, you're to cut him off and let him know that this church is not accepting of what he does. He can't be part of the, the behavior. And, and then he says, deliver him to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So this, this word here, deliver, um, means to turn him over. It's using the date of case, which is which is the case that would be sort of handing something to deliver a letter or put something into something. It's basically suggesting place this man into Satan's hands or allow Satan to have his way with him. And he says the reason why is for, or the Greek word here is actually into, which can mean for, for the purpose of the destruction of flesh. Now, this is where scholars vary because the word here, uh, destruction, all the theros, uh, means death. It means the cutting off or it means to, to kill something. And the word here, flesh, sarks, um, isn't talking so much, it's like, what, what is this talking about here? It's not talking about somos, which means body. So this is a Pauline expression that he often used for the sinful nature. So some would say, well, he's talking about this man getting sick, or and commentators go that way. But the word sarks here is all too, in my opinion, peculiar. This is what Paul means for the sinful nature. What I think Paul is saying here, and I could be, others would vary, but I think this, I'm pretty convinced is what he means and looking at it. What he's saying is, let this man go, cut him off, and the consequences of his sinful nature and his sin is going to become such uh, consequential to him, and it's going to be so detrimental, the consequences that he faces, that he'll end up putting to death his sinful nature or getting tired of his sin and 
coming around and repenting and getting rid of the sinful nature that is causing him to do this in the first place. Um, so you don't see that this is vindictive or it's malignant because he says after this, um, so that is our ina, so the ina clause follows this, the word ina, or we translate so that in English, is like for the purpose of. This is the reason we're doing this. It's not because we don't like the man. We want his spirit to be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this ina clause here, I think, backs this, that he's, he's putting two things in contrast, the sinful nature versus being saved or being regened here. And so when I teach this, it's a tough lesson in love that Paul is talking about. He's basically saying, don't strive with this man anymore. Just let him go. Ultimately, trust in the provision of God that God even has, has a sovereignty over Satan. And what Satan does, trust God's provision. Don't bear with this man anymore. And let's believe and hope for the best outcome that he, he comes to know God because he's tired of dealing with his own sin. Um, that's a tough lesson, and it's hard for a lot of us to accept today. But that's exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. And I think there's a lot of application we can draw on that today. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I'm going to ask you a question that is out of Colossians uh, 1, uh, 15, where Jesus yeah. is called the firstborn. If, if he's yeah. eternal, why is he called firstborn? Total, that's a great question. The protocols. This is where the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to your door on Saturdays when you're eating breakfast and they want to debate, they'll go over the scripture a lot. So the word their protocols is not referring to actual creation in the sense of being created. This was actually used in, in Psalms in the in the Psalms account uh, in the Septuagint, which is Greek, was a Greek um, Old Testament, to refer to birth order and birth order in the sense of the David actually was called the prototokos because he was the one who had the inheritance, okay? Even though he wasn't the firstborn, he was the lastborn, but he was called the firstborn because he had, he, he had the inheritance, or the inheritance went to him, and he was the supreme son of all of them. So when he calls Christ the firstborn, he's not saying that he was created or that he was in, in any created order, that there was a creation taking place. What he's actually saying is that he's the head over all creation and Colossians gives you the reason right after that because he's the creator. It would only make sense that the creator is the head of all creation or the prototokos or the sovereign is another way it's translated over all creation. So it's actually echoing back to Psalms where it's talking about David who had the inheritance being the supreme son, not because of birth or because he was created, but because he had the inheritance or he had the highest position. So it just simply means he has the highest position in all of creation. Sometimes I wish I could go back in time and say, Paul, don't use that word. They're going to confuse it. There's going to be cults as a result of this, but God knew what he was doing, and it just takes looking into the grammar to to figure that one out. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at, at all of your books, and I didn't know you had written so many books. <laughs> yeah, so Which gets back to my you don't that. sleep thing. <laughs> you know, I got this this hand that just has to write and type <laughs> stuff, so keeps yeah. me awake. Yeah, so I would love to continue talking Greek with you, because <laughs> I, I find it fascinating, and uh, you've got so many interesting books out. Uh, even the one called uh, Questions You Ask When You Begin a Relationship with God, uh, Mm -hmm. The Believer's Journey, um, Mm -hmm. Escaping the Haunting Past, Letters Mm -hmm. from Jesus, Greek Word Study, and it goes on and on. So, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I've been busy in my 30s, so... Yeah, are you still in your 30s? 37. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of wisdom for 37. You know, oh, thanks. thanks yeah. I think so. My, my my family might tell you otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. 
<laughs> but I enjoy uh, having you on, Chris, and thank you so much for saying yes, and let's try to talk Greek yeah. regularly. Let's try to do this often. I like this. We're going to make it happen. Okay. Me and Rosie will we'll collaborate, and we'll make it happen, Bill. Perfect. Thanks. All right. Have a great rest of the day. You too. God bless. God bless you. Chris Palmer has been my guest, and his uh, book is not coming out until August, but we'll have him back on several times between now and then. Maybe I'll twist his arm, and towards uh, August at the release date, I'll get uh, half a dozen copies to give out to listeners, because that's always a nice little thing to have as a little drawing for the book. So we'll hopefully do that uh, in August. So we're going to take a little break, and then we've got uh, Hour 2 coming up. And I'm so glad you're uh, with me today. I'm looking forward to spending more time with you, and uh, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.